Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, this is Jose Ignacio Alfaro, producer of Are We Still Talking About This? In this episode, Jessica and Adam speak with stand-up comedian and activist Aida Rodriguez. Aida is featured in the upcoming Netflix series, Tiffany Haddish Presents, They Ready. The following conversations includes discussions of sexual violence, kidnapping, child abuse, eating disorders, poverty, trauma, and therapy. Aida's upcoming tour dates, as well as resources relating to topics discussed, are in the episode description. Want more episodes of Are We Still Talking About This? Subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and Google Play. I hope you dig it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So happy to have Ida Rodriguez here with us today she is taping her special this week we can't say the network because that's how networks are however it's super exciting she has an amazing group of people behind her uh, yeah tiffany haddish and wanda sykes and Paige Hurwitz, which is uh, kind of my squad so i have a lot of history with all three of those women so i'm excited about women creating opportunities for other women finally i know <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, but true. Yeah. So yeah, Tiffany and I were really, we're very close. We had a pact that whoever went first would create a way for the other and she kept her word. So I'm really excited about that because some people won't and don't feel like they have to. And she feels a sense of obligation to help other people. And I love that about her. That's great. I like hearing about women helping women because... That has to happen a lot more. Mm-hmm. It should. It really should. And, um, you know, it's interesting because two black women are behind my uh, taping this special. You know, as a Latin woman, it's kind of sad that none of the Latin women who are successful thought about creating opportunities for other Latin women and who have deals and producing abilities so I just, I think it, it speaks volumes about why Latinos feel left behind with the canceling of One Day at a Time that, um, you know, they, they feel like there's a conspiracy against them. But the reality is, is that Latinos are not showing up for Latinos and they're not going to see us until we see each other. So 
I jumped on that soapbox because I felt like, damn, two black women said you're up while my people just kept overlooking me. So it's cool. Why do you think that is? Well, the biggest thing is that there's this industry people don't understand. You guys are you're from the East Coast, so you have a, a different understanding about Latinos. There is no such thing as a Latino market. Yeah, there's no Latino market. There's a Mexican market. There's a Puerto Rican market. There's an Afro-Caribbean market. There's a Caribbean Latino market, a South American market. We have so many intersections. There's no such thing as a Latino market. The only thing we have in common is that we speak Spanish. You know, we we're, we come in all hues. There are white Latinos. People from Argentina are, are very Italian looking and culturally. And the the fact that you think that you are going to... Uh, to speak the story of those people. Black people have being black in common. That's the one thing that they have in common. Not not the only thing, but that is why they can connect on being black. But Latinos are black and they can be white and they can be indigenous. And there's no such thing as it. So then you have these executives saying, we're going to come up with a Latino show. And then the Latinos don't show up because Latinos are assimilators. They want to assimilate into American culture. There's a duality about being Latin. You want to be as American as you can without betraying your culture. And um, you can't tell the story of us all in one TV show. But you can tell the story of people who happen to be Latino and reach everybody. But you have to stop treating us like we are, you know, camels. You know, they, they, they talk about us like... What are we going to do with the Latinos? There's a whole spectrum of Latinos. You're not going to reach all of us. So just tell the stories about people who happen to be Latino, and then we'll show up. We saw you perform the other night at uh, the Improv on one of the later shows. And that was like a th- it was like a three-hour show. Yeah, it yeah. ended at around 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, they're, they're doing those now. They're, now the shows go to 2 in the morning. I really engaged with your set because instantly when you get on stage and behind a microphone, um, one can tell in the audience that what you're saying means something to you and it's challenging and it's authentic. Which yeah, I, I suddenly woke up. Yeah, that's oh, a great, that's a great way to put it because you're kind of in that comedy show haze because I never want to be anywhere, especially usually not a comedy I show. I drag him to comedy. Yeah. So, uh, but then you came as like, wow, this, this person has a wonderfully developed point of view and it's challenging. And I wish you would just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, even with, uh, she did. Yeah, as much as you can with that tepid audience, <laughs> but it was exciting. So I'd be interested to hear your set, which I assume is going to be your special when you're completely and totally unleashed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've never been jokey joke, you know, airplane food. I've, that's never been me. I've, I started with the uncomfortable. What I had to learn was how to really shape that into something that was palatable and digestible for everybody. But I've always talked about my uncomfortable truths because I feel like stand-up is uh, cathartic for me. It, I've been through a lot of stuff in life, like everybody else, and stand-up has been my way. But knowing a little bit about your life, maybe more so. Oh, and yeah. when you get on stage, it, it, it to me is someone who, again, had, had never met you and was just hearing your set for the first time, that you had perspective, and it's not like it was some sort of fresh processing that you were doing but now that you had distance you were helping people maybe work through similar issues by a kind of an aggressive biting and intelligent view of trauma and pain and difficulties oh i appreciate that so i listen i've been molested i've been raped i've been kidnapped my mom was uh, dating a murderer and i was exposed to him a lot of things happened to me when i was young and 
I what I ha- what I learned as a kid was that I had I did not have an opportunity to sulk and be a victim because I had to survive. I became anorexic at a very young age because I modeled and I got introduced to um, I got scouted when I was 14. And it kept telling me that I needed to change my body, that my hips were too. And so I got down to like 117 pounds because I abused diet pills. And, and you're very you're very tall. People, yeah. People yeah. Know, so so that's, I'm 5'10", 5'11", at 117 mm-hmm. pounds. I look like walking death. But I was walking around with all this trauma and I just kept finding different ways to deal with it and abusing my body and having a poor relationship with food was something was one of the ways. And I'm not a, I didn't turn to drugs. I, I didn't turn to, you know, the other addictions. But for me, it was dealing with food and not eating. I really feel like if I'm going to be doing stand up, stand up is something I always wanted to do. I was little and I remember watching Richard Pryor I used to sneak behind because my uncle used to watch Richard Pryor and my family was very religious and I wasn't allowed to watch stuff with people cursing and I was like I want to be like that when I grow up and I learned how to speak English by watching Johnny Carson I used to say that's my father (laughs) it was because I was you know when you don't have a dad you just fantasize about what your real dad when you don't know your dad and to me it was like that's what I want my dad to be because he's so funny and he's so smart Stand up is something I always wanted to do and I wasn't allowed to because my mom was like, that's for boys. And she said, no man is going to ever want to marry you if you're walking around being goofy, you know, trying to be funny. And I was like, Lucy has a husband, you know. So I had to come to it later. It was something I always wanted to do. I always chased. But what I learned was that when I picked up the microphone and I started doing stand up, I, I began to heal. I remember talking about anorexia one time on stage. It was my first time. Was this in Miami? It was here. Oh, here. I started stand up here. Yeah, I never did my, I never did anything that I love to do close to my family because they would always Where in LA? steal it from me. <laughs> I started doing stand up here at, uh, the improv was the first club to pass me. And they passed me, Rita passed me within six months. Like I, I, I don't even know anybody who's been past that fast. I think Gerard Cartmichael probably beat me to it. But I started doing stand-up there. And I did, I was on stage working out. I didn't know what stand-up was. I was so new. I just was raw. And they responded to my rawness. And, and you, you said that, that your first joke was an anorexia joke. I did my first joke about anorexia. That's incredible. So right off the bat. I'll yeah. go straight about it. And then this an A-list actress sends me an email on uh, MySpace and says, I was about to binge and purge, but I watch you do you I watch you do your set and I'm gonna go to my meeting and I hope you go to yours. And then I was like, I'm on to something, you know. I also finished doing a set and this Mexican woman came up to me with tattoos on her face and she was like, I wanna talk to you. And I thought she was gonna try to beat me up. And she said, My son hung himself two weeks ago in my backyard. And it's the first time I laughed. Thank you for telling our story. And then I re- that those two incidents just let me know, they reaffirmed that I was, what I was doing with stand-up was not gonna help other, just help other people, but it will help me heal too. So that's why it became like therapy for me. I feel like there was a point when comics could just do their material without having to the burden of being the voice for others. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I never thought about that. I'm a Latin woman. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist and I'm a feminist. And that those are, you know, a feminist 
is the antithesis of a Seventh-day Adventist woman. I wasn't allowed to wear earrings, makeup, or pants when I was little because of Guess the, what? the church. Right. No church, just oh, the, my, the, my home. Yeah, and, and it's... So now when I go on stage and I have to... I have the burden of speaking up for Latin women because they don't think that we are varied. They don't think that we are feminists or we, we believe in the choice of having abortion. They don't think, they think we're all conservative and we're all right-wing thinkers. So yeah, it, it, it became something different as of late because the voiceless is out there and when you have a microphone and you feel, I don't just wanna tell jokes, I'm not a jester, I'm not a clown to just make people laugh. You know, I wanna be able to talk about things that need to be talked about. I would assume that you, when one gets on stage, they feel a burden to do light material, right? Like if you're in a room and I'm just going to pick a random city that I hate, Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, I'm and, from Florida. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was born <laughs> so in I Gainesville, exactly. lived in Tampa, fucking fuck that. Was in Melbourne, Florida two oh, years ago. Yeah. Sorry. So you know it. A Florida man is real. Uh, yeah, scarily. Everywhere. I, I worked in the jails for a bit. Uh, yeah, jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping atrocities everywhere. Oh, it's like yeah. a armadillo holocaust and walmart parking lots there, there were armadillos with leprosy in the town i was in they had to issue a public health warning like don't fuck with the dead armadillos because they have leprosy i'm like i what did i do i gotta get wow, out of this that's florida i'm from miami but i went to school in tallahassee so i was always up okay. down that state <laughs> wonderful panhandle so, oh yeah i went the first time i went to tallahassee they were having a kkk rally that we had to drive through <sighs> it's really like a governor's rally was a yeah. mayoral campaign going on <laughs> But what was I rambling about? Oh, like, um, do, do you have to lighten it, lighten it up? Do you feel like you, no. you have to say like, okay, I got to do the Carlin thing where I'll say a dick joke to then hit them with something no. more significant and you just go for it? No, I don't. I, you know, I used to do that before and I consider that pandering. The, re the truth is that it's real right now. It's raw right now. This is where we are right now. And I don't need to code switch to make anybody comfortable. If, if I make you uncomfortable, then get up and leave because that's what's happening right now. You know, um, I'm tired of that. Like people are like, oh, you're not gonna talk about politics, are you? We're so exhausted. Well, you know what? You never get to hear about my politics since you're probably watching Fox News. But I have to I have to deal with the reality that I have to worry about my brother, my son, my uncles, my cousins walking out the house and getting shot for no reason. Speaking of that, I uh, heard you speak a, a story about your son when he was 12. And I taught at a school that I've learned not to say the name of, but it was right down the street from uh, the school that your son went to. Mm -hmm. And they're both excellent private private schools in a very, very affluent area of Studio City. Oh, so I know where you were. Then. Yeah, so the, the fact that that happened to him there is, is, is mind-blowing. Oh, yeah, we have to, you know, the thing is that, and that's the thing, when people are like, keep it light, don't tell me what to do. You know what? Don't tell me what to do. Go to church on Sunday and tell your pastor to keep it light. We're comedians. We're supposed to make you uncomfortable. This is the way I see it. And if you don't want to see the way I see it, then just excuse yourself while I'm on stage. But no, I don't lighten it up. I think right now we are supposed to go in. We're supposed to go for the jugular. That's where we are right now. You know, George Carlin didn't lighten it up for anybody. Nobody told George Carlin, hey, stick to comedy. But they feel comfortable and compelled to tell someone like me, just tell jokes. No, the, my jokes are based on what's going on right now. I love it. Who are some of the people that say that to you? 
Like, oh, I get it all the time. Um, I get a lot of emails from random people, even some comedians. Like uh, some of the white guys will tell me, you know, Ida, you seem so angry. What the Latin comedians, uh, there's a one particular Latin male comic who called himself doing an intervention with me and told me, you have to deal with that anger inside of you so that you don't take it on stage. And I was like, did you ever think that George Carlin shouldn't be angry on stage or Richard Pryor? Or is it me because I'm a woman and I should be a little bit more appeasing? It's so frustrating. Like, I am angry because I have a reason to be angry. My body is being, my rights are being assaulted. Um, (laughs) I think that we should all be angry right now, you know? Like, it's so, so hypocritical. It's so ridiculous to tell a comic, lighten it up. I'm not, I'm not a carrot top. I don't do that. That's not what I do. Go see him if that's what you want to see. Have you ever seen a carrot top show? I have. That's and he's angry good. too. He is. Yeah. And he's I think he's funny. Some, he's going through stuff. You oh know? yeah. His kid, his kid went to school with my kid. They, they were both, they went to school in Sherman Oaks. The thing about comedy is that when I see these guys saying, I don't like this person's comedy or I don't like that person's comedy. I don't feel that way. I feel like if you're a comedian and you're dedicated to comedy, you belong here, right? We should have a spectrum. Like there are days when I've had a rough day and I just want to go see Darren Carter, the party starter perform. You know why? Because he makes me happy. It's light. And, but that's who he is. And then there are days where I really want to think and I want to go see the Lucas brothers because I want to hear something that's going to make me say I'm in that mode where I feel cerebral and I want to hear something from the point of view of people that see life the way I see it. So I don't I'm not I don't think Carrot Top is campy or hacky. I think Carrot Top is doing processing the way he does and I'm doing it the way that I do. And we both there should be room for both of us to be here before comedy. How did you process stuff? Um, angry. I was very angry. You know, I, I I started going to therapy when I moved to California because I come from a family where they say, you're not crazy. Why are you going to that? Like, what's that for? Thank God I went to therapy because I prob- probably wouldn't be alive right now. I was abusing diet pills to a point where I probably would have died, you know, because I was going crossing the border to go to Mexico to get fentanyl. And I was taking like clenbuterol and real drugs. Yeah. But before I was just walking around hurt and I couldn't you couldn't touch me because I was hurting. And it was like I couldn't maintain relationships. You know, I couldn't um, I was in pain all the time and I didn't understand that I was in pain. I I just thought that that was the way it was supposed to be because I had been programmed to believe that hurt and struggle and trauma was just part of my life and I would just have to deal with it. Were you working a lot during that time to yeah. compensate for? Oh yeah, yeah. I've always worked. I've I've never stopped working. I've always worked since I started working. I've never had a break. I've never been unemployed. I've always felt a sense of duty to work. Um, and I have a very I have poverty thinking. So I'm I'm even when I have money, I'm always like afraid that it's gonna run out because I've been homeless. So I um. How long ago was was that? I was homeless here. Wow. Um. So the the truth, people make fun of me because they're like, did something not happen to you? It seems like everything happened to you. <laughs> but who would say that? A lot. What an asshole. Well, asshole people. Some yeah. would say that I used to work in community mental health and so many people had everything happen yeah. to them. You know? So people need to understand it's kind of exceptional and privileged when that stuff doesn't 
happen. Yeah, you don't sense. you don't have someone. I you know I, I got pregnant young. I left home. I married this guy, my my Muslim ex husband, who was a little bit on the, um, you know, dom- domineering and controlling side. And I um, when I when I decided to leave and I moved here. Like many men, he decided to financially oppress me because he wanted me to come back. And uh, th- he did some underhanded things. And I ended up homeless with two children. And I, I lived in an expedition. And then we graduated from the expedition to Best Westerns. And then I moved in with a friend. And then I finally worked my way to going. But that wasn't, that was right. I was homeless when I was doing Last Comic Standing. Wow. That was in 2014. I wasn't on the street, but I was living they with... They make that part of the story. The friend. No. <laughs> that's a mistake of the producer. Yeah, that's yeah. a giant failure on their part. Yeah, they didn't... They, you know what I... And I was just thanking Wanda for that. She did not allow them to exploit what was happening to me because then people would have said, she's on the show because, you know, she didn't allow them to do that to me. And I, I appreciated that from her. But I was, I was still living with friends. Because of Last Comic Standing, I was able to to get my own life back, you know, together. Your kids were in school at the time? Yeah. So what what was it like for them? My my kids describe it like uh, life is beautiful. Like they didn't know what was going on because I worked really hard. The Holocaust film or just in general? Just the the Holocaust movie. That The way that the father protected the son from the reality of what was going on and not to minimize the Holocaust, but... The, uh, minimize away. No, I'm just no, kidding. But, you know, <laughs> but it was just that they. my son would always say to me, I remember being in the grocery store crying and saying, I think I'm going to quit. Mm. My son was like, you can't quit because if you quit, my hero dies. And he was oh. like, you got to keep going. And it was... Um, a lot of things happened to me. 2013, my grandmother died of cancer. and My grandmother raised me. And then my uncle was murdered in a hate crime because he was gay. And they wow. they beat him to death in Florida, which is part of the reason why I hate that place. Yeah. And, um, and so I had to go and try to be funny with all this hurt. And um, I didn't want to do Last Comic Standing when they called me. Because I was like, how can I go on stage and be funny with all this stuff happening to me? And my kids were like, yes, you can. You, we don't, we've been through so much. We've struggled so much. We're broke. And what else do we have to lose? Let's go. And my kids stood and sat in that audience and they gave me a standing ovation every time they saw me on stage and they just kept pumping me up because it had been a rough run. You know, I think about my life and the last few years have been good years for me. Uh, I remember my aunt saying to me recently, she used to always try to take me like she was always asking my mom to give me to her. She said, I'm so amazed that you're so balanced considering all of the things that happened to you. And I'm I'm in I'm, I'm you know, I'm looking at her like what? Like to me, that was normal. Like all of that shit happening, all that stuff that happened to me was normal. Like I was like, this is just life. Or and you then, sort of just accept it. Like, this is just the way yeah. it is. Yeah. Absolutely. You get used to it. Yeah, you do. And it was so, you know, I, I got molested when I was little and I would never tell my mom because I didn't want my mother to feel like she failed. Oh. Yeah, how, like, how old were, were you about? I, oh, I was, when I got molested the first time, I was about four or five years old. It was a neighbor. Um, and um, I remember saying my mom was molested as well. And she was so traumatized by it that, I, I, 
I felt like if I would have told her, and I knew this at a very young age, that she would feel like she failed. So I never told her. Like to this day, I will never tell her, you know. It's funny, my, my job or one of some of the work I used to do was um, we worked at a sexual abuse treatment provider clinic, but it was a holistic family clinic. So I was in the room with the non-offending caregivers, which is a room for the parents processing exactly that just the feelings of culpability and responsibility oh, yeah. that come with. So, I mean, it's pretty insightful and amazing that as a four-year-old, you, five-year-old, you took that on your, yourself. Yeah, your I just knew. And, I, and maybe that was not what I knew. I didn't know how to articulate it at the time, but I knew it wasn't fear. It wasn't, um, it wasn't I was afraid that uh, to tell her because I think my abuser is going to, I didn't want to disappoint her because she had been through so much and what happened to me was that I became my mother's mother because my mother's mother. Parentification. Yeah. It's a fun term for that one. Yeah. She yeah. didn't have, um, my, my, her mother failed her. And so I'll tell you a story about my mother that encompasses her entire struggle and trauma. My mom kept getting these really bad headaches and I went to the doctor with her. And the doctor said, you have scoliosis. They did They did all these tests. And they were like, you have a very strange scoliosis. They were like, what happened to you when you were little? Well, she was being molested by someone in the house. So she spent her four, her developing years hiding under a cabinet. So her wow. spinal cord never fully developed. I've never heard that. I've heard a lot of stuff. That's yeah. amazing. So for me, knowing these things about my mother, I I took on the role of, like even to this day, I just talked to her yesterday and it's like, I my mom has never, ever, ever, uh, she probably will never heal from what's happened to her because it's just so much trauma. She She's had a lot, you know? And so for me, being my best self is my greatest contribution to helping my mother heal just because I, we get to tell her, look what you did. We turned out really, our my siblings and I are, pretty good do you still are you still in therapy or do you feel like comedy is a good way to deal with trauma now i'll tell you a funny story i went to therapy maybe a month and a half ago and then um this is what happened i go in i start talking to this lady she's great then she turns to me and says you are a believer right and i said um excuse me she's like no i just she's like you know the number one healing uh, method is knowing that Jesus is the way oh, and it. from that moment on <sighs> I was like I gotta get through this hour so I can get out of here and I'm never coming back here again yeah that's not ethical which she did we should say that people are not supposed to do that if you mm -hmm. if one were to seek out a faith-based practitioner that's great that's their choice but a, yeah. a regular practitioner should never ever try and impose their belief system on their client and it wasn't in the in the information Ugh. regarding. So it was just like I was and I if you ever want me to run, you start talking about religion and I'm out. I'm right you with you. Yeah. Do you remember a moment from your first run of therapy where you kind of had the breakthrough and realized these things happened to me in the past? Those were my outcomes. But now my outcomes can be different because I have agency. Yes, I do remember that. Uh, that was uh, maybe about. I would say 10 years ago that I, I I remember having a moment in epiphany where I was like, I'm free. Like I, I felt like I was in bondage for so much of my life 
And that's why stand up came because I was like, I'm going to go do it. And everybody was like, you're crazy. But I remember being free and saying, I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. I was a victim when I didn't have a choice because when I was little, I couldn't leave. But now I'm an adult and I don't have to take this and I won't. So, yes, I remember that moment where I was like, I got I'm, I'm in control of this. Um, I think I felt that before, but then I got raped and the rape was so traumatic because it was during a moment where I felt really empowered. It was where I was feeling I had just left my ex-husband and I felt like um, I was on my way. And then to be physically restrained with a pillow over my face, which I make jokes about now, um, was uh, the thing that kind of took my power away for that moment. And then I started feeling like I was in bondage again. And then I moved. I left the state of Florida because that's where it happened. And then I finally started to breathe again. Wow. Do, do you remember, and this is an odd question for some folks, the, the therapeutic modality, just meaning, do you think it was cognitive behavioral therapy? Uh, what kind of, was it trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy? If you... So the last therapist that I was with, which I spent the most time with before the kooky lady that was <laughs> <laughs> trying to convert me back to Christianity, she was the, a cognitive therapist. And um, uh, I wanted to, I left her because um, I felt like she was a little too, um, I, I, I don't want anybody to make me a victim again. But I do I do need to know. And one of the things that I needed to know was that a lot of things that happened to me were not my fault. And with her, it was very like you're in control of this ship. You you're you you control if a man does this to you or you. And it was just That's interesting. Awful. Well, she shouldn't. have. I'm sorry. I always end up talking about shit about therapists. But uh, in the trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy world, if I'm remembering this correctly, we used to do this thing called a responsibility pie. Yeah. So the and this is with kids. So the idea is that everybody has a chunk of this responsibility. It's not blame, but implying that you do have some responsibility just over what you do leads to some sort of agency later on. Yeah. You know? Specifically with things that happened to me, it was when I was a child. So it's yeah. not like I was an adult making decisions that would put me into these. I was, you know, when I'm five, I'm five, you know, and there's this. You know, I have I, I I blocked out a lot of stuff. Um, I did go see um, more of a, a healer therapist that was very helpful to me. That helped me do this exercise where I would go back and um, and and deal with myself as a child, and that was very helpful to me. I, I think I had a breakthrough. I always used to think like that was bullshit. Okay. So, did you role play? Do you remember? Did you have to, you imagined yourself like as a, did you talk yeah. to your six-year-old self? And, yeah, and, stuff? and yeah. I cried. And I, I, I was like, I, I remember sitting there like, this is some bullshit, yeah. like, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then when I went deep, yeah. I saw myself as that child and I broke down. And um, it was, uh, it, it was something that was very uh, impactful for me because I be, I became the adult that that little me needed in that moment right. that never that I never had. That took me to a different place where I could go. And you know I don't share this with people because when you start talking about stuff like this, people get weirded out. But it helped me get to the place where I could pick up a microphone and go do stand up. I was yeah. like, oh, I'm you know it was just it was a very weird experience, and it wasn't like some hokey. It was real. It was real. 
you know? I, I did that before with a therapist. Actually, the last time I was really in therapy, she had me talk to my five-year-old self. Yeah. And remember in the beginning, I was just like, oh, okay. And I remember I even said that. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, yes. Oh, hello, Jessica. She goes, no, let's really yeah. think back to, do you see little Jessica? I said, no. Uh, okay, yeah, all right. Let's, you know, I remember. And it took like the whole session to finally do it. Mm-hmm. And then I just needed to take a break. Yeah, no, it's deep. And the thing is, like, I never think of myself when I think of myself as five-year-old Ida. I don't ever have a, I don't look at her face. I just see me and maybe it's a shadow. But that to think of yourself when you're five going through the stuff that you're going through, like, when is my dad going to come get me? Where is my mother? I'm five years old. And you start actually going to that place where you see yourself as that baby. It You're like, oh, it's scary because yeah. you, you can go right back to those feelings. And the people around you, the gatekeepers, a lot of times for people of color, our parents are so busy surviving, they don't have time to tend to us. Yeah. I was going to ask you if any of your practitioners were women of color. No, I can tell you that it's very hard to find practitioners that are people of color. You take your culture with you no matter where you are. Yep. You can't, you know. And you're supposed to be aware of that. They train you to be, you're supposed to be cognizant of all your ethnocentricities. Yeah. Like you sit there in a room and I had some great instructors where you really face all the preconceived notions you have about everybody and you get mm-hmm. to really, really uncomfortable conversations about race and shit in the good programs. Oh, yeah. But you're supposed to do that. And if people don't do that, it's just worthless. And as people of color, you don't trust it. You know, like my boyfriend and I talk about therapy and we talked about he he's doesn't feel comfortable with it and it's because of the the stigma of the people who are abusing you know they're riding around in these bmws and they're you know it's a it's a hustle as opposed to um really you know being something real i will say this i always give him a shout out because I think that he really thinks it's important so i work at the laugh factory i'm a regular at the laugh factory Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory, gives every comedian six free therapy sessions. Really? Yeah. That's Mental fantastic. It's wow. very important to him That's because wonderful. of all of the comedians who've committed suicide, one of them was very close to him. This is not since Brody. He's been doing this for years. I was able Jenny. to- Huh? Richard Jenny. Yeah. yeah. So I've been, I was able to find my therapist through that pro, through that because- uh, he gave me the free six sessions. And then I was like, I'm broke, Jamie. And he was like, just keep going. Mm-hmm. And I went for almost a year for free. Thanksgiving, Christmas, he expects the comedians to be there to feed homeless people. And if you need therapy, you ca- call him. And if you can't afford to go beyond the six sessions, he will take care That's of it. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you is, is there any time when you talked about, you know, you are so raw and you are so vulnerable and you always are yourself. Is there a time where you talked about something on stage and then you felt like, oh, this was maybe a little too much to share where you had to, the burden, like we were saying earlier, the burden of mm-hmm. having people come talk to you is like, yes, you don't want to do fluffy and light, but is there a point where you're like, you know what, I wasn't ready to give that oh yeah a lot of times there are times where i go really far and i leave saying maybe that wasn't the time but i always find the comedy in it later but that's how it works for me because i write on stage and you know to love me as a comedian is to understand that i'm gonna always 
go as far as I can go because for me, my very mental well-being is depending on it. It's not just me telling jokes. This is a journey for me where I actually get to talk about the things that free me. And um, when I, the very first time I talked about getting molested on stage, I made the audience really uncomfortable because so many people get molested. And, you know, you hear from men all the time who are like, oh, but a lot of men got molested. They don't process it yeah, that so, way. So many. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially in the communities of people of color, so many of my male comic friends Byron included are like, oh, the first person I fucked was the babysitter because you were being sexually abused. You are a child. That's not sex. That's child abuse. Yeah, and sometimes it has this bravado associated with it. Oh, yeah, the macho. And and, and, and if you you say that it isn't, then they question your sexuality and your macho-ness. And so where I, how I grew up, you know, some of the most ignorant things happened in my family. Like my brother had to lose his virginity to a prostitute, you know, because that's a man. Like we're going to go get a woman for him too. AIDS was out there. You know what I mean? Like that was ridiculous, but people process differently. I like to live out loud because I feel like living out loud sometimes you could save a life. You know, I think about all the people who are walking around repressed. i rather... um I rather ask for forgiveness than to beg for permission. That's yeah. that's what I'm on. So I go, I go, I go hard. <laughs> it also is great for the audience. Like if the audience isn't with that kind of fuck them. Like why would you go out and see a live show if you didn't have the possibility of something sort of serendipitous happening? Oh yeah, you know, at least to me. Look, I love dark shows. I mean, I love. Drew Michael and all the suicide jokes mm-hmm. and all that. You know, I don't know if you know his suicide joke mm-hmm. where he's like, if, you, if you're feeling comfortable, it's because you relate to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love stand-up comedy um, in a way that I get so angry when I see that people try to abuse it and exploit it. Um, I don't care if you're an Instagrammer and you want to do a stand-up, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, but respect the journey. Like, I don't hate Stormy Daniels for doing stand-up. I hate the industry for saying anybody can do it because of everything other than stand-up. Right. You know, like, and I just think people disrespect comedy because nobody's walking up on a fucking Robert Zemeckis film saying, hey, I got 10 million followers, put me in your movie. <laughs> right? right? Nobody Not ever yet. Yeah. yeah, they can't do it. But yeah. the truth is that with stand-up comedy, it's become, these variables have become factors and getting people an opportunity but stand-up comedy is such a beautiful art that you get to see the way people think and and the way other brains work and sometimes it normalizes the shit that's happening in your head for you to know that you're not the only one that sees life sometimes through a dark lens absolutely when i was i would hear that when i was a therapist a lot is people would come in and they would reference popular culture or mm-hmm. popular culture excuse me or art or comedians that they liked and so it does like it's real that you yeah. could say something and people really hold on to it and it, it helps them and i feel like that's belittled sometimes because some people do it shittily or artificially but for the people who really do it it is tremendously important to a lot of folks oh yeah people come out to stand-up comedy to see a reflection of themselves and to see that they're okay like um you know you hear some people say some things that are dark and other people are like that's fucked up but deep down inside it's not that fucked up you probably thought that shit 10 times and that comedian just freed you and be like maybe i'm not a fucking lunatic maybe i'm just a human being that's having a bad day 
and that's important. I, I get depressed when I hear comedy that is just scratch not barely scratching the surface listen i i thank god for comedy i thank the gods for comedy because i feel like i don't know where i would be i i have the you know i've had the suicidal thoughts i suffer from depression i suffer from anxiety and it's not the depression that you claim because you're having a bad day or you didn't get a job i have the chemical depression that um you know i i would i i remember not getting up for two weeks and my poor kids have to watch me just laying like a vegetable on a couch wondering what's wrong with them or what they could do to help me and I had to really sit with them and explain to them that there are days that it's so dark and I don't medicate so I um because I, you know, like most comedians, I feel like if I take medication, it's going to make me docile and I'm going to be less interesting on stage. But I battle with it and I, I figured out different ways, homeopathic ways, Eastern ways to deal with my depression. But I have real depression and it's not because I didn't book a job or it's real. Like I, I, I get in this haze and I can't, I cannot, um, I, I don't want to stand up. Yeah, there was a study that came out pretty recently that uh, shows that when people are really depressed, you don't see the same colors that you usually see. So actually, your your visual spectrum is reduced, which is yeah, it's wild. Dull. Yeah. It's very dull. I was just going to say that I think back to cognitive therapy, I think there are some tools in cognitive therapy that can work for kind of like what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend to people listening to try cognitive therapy. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, because you could, because, you know, you sort of just think about like, okay, you know, why do I feel depressed? Well, because X, Y, and Z happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you see that written, you, and you write these things down and then you start to feel better. You know, it's like. So the cognitive triangle, the cognitions influence emotions, which influence action. You have to draw a little triangle and you yeah. realize, wait, nobody's making me feel anything. I'm feeling this way because this happened or I'm behaving in this way and that's causing this thought. Yeah. And then this thought provokes mm-hmm. this emotional reaction. So if I can just cut it off here, I don't have to feel like fucking human garbage in this instance, maybe. Yeah. But for me, yeah. sometimes like I'll think about like my worst days and then I really can appreciate the good ones because I'm like, man, you know, it's not like that day. That's what I've been thinking about. Like and and now I was talking to someone about suicide because I did a podcast and people uh, someone I was talking about having suicidal thoughts and the person said to me, "Hey, um, you should think about uh, how fortunate you are in life." Right? And I was like, "You know what I think about um, that gets me through those suicidal thoughts? The last time I thought about killing myself and going getting over that." Mm-hmm. I don't. I have to think about the darkest place well, that I've been. If you have free time, which I'm sure you don't, do you, do you live out here? Or do you live? I live uh, here. Um, there is a Dee Dee Hirsch runs a runs a wonderful volunteer uh, suicide crisis hotline. That if you have like a weekend you want to go get trained, then you go in for four hours a week. I did it for a few years, and you just be fabulous answering the phones, saying exactly that because that's what people need to hear. I would love to do that because yeah. it's. The truth is that's how I get through it. It's not mm. sitting around saying, "Oh, my life is good. I I book I did right. HBO." Right. That. I, that that's my depression isn't based on success or money or it's a chemical and and it's yeah. something that it's really hard to understand why my brain is doing that. 
I don't have a point of reference. My grandmother was addicted to pills and my mom is addicted to pills because they've never been, they were never properly diagnosed and they never properly dealt with their illness. So for me, I'm having to figure this out on my own. And, um, cause I want to, I want to get to the place where I am. I have some footing so that my daughter can have some semblance of, of direction and peace because pills are not the answer, but you know, I, um, I, I've, I'm, I'm so much better right now. I mean, I, I had some darkness in the last couple of years, um, triggers, you know, but I'm so much better now because I've really, I really started, um, you know, my gratitude journal really helps me as corny as it, that may uh, sound. It's important. Sometimes it does. Corny it, is good. Yeah. Whatever it, works. People got yeah. it, it, People who know me know I'm a fucking dark, fucked up person. So when they hear I do things like you know gratitude reflections they're like you what are you talking i'm also a vegan people look at me like what the fuck is wrong with you but if you could embrace that shit a little mm-hmm. regardless of your baseline personality it's really really helpful you just have to like expose yourself mm-hmm. in a way to be like i'm gonna try the shit that i think is corny because my yeah. thinking this corny is a fucked up defense mechanism that's keeping me absolutely miserable, you know and you know what um one person i'm not a vegan i was a vegan before i, I was a vegan then i became pescatarian a lot of issues with my my health about um, being anemic and hypoglycemic yeah. and not eating properly. But there was a, a person who was a very metaphysical thinker that said to me, um, when you eat meat, your stomach is a graveyard. And that just stuck with me for a long time. And it was like, you are eating trauma <laughs> every yeah. day. And so... Um, I'm a pescatarian now, which means I'm still eating, you know, life. But there was there is some truth to that. Learning to understand things from a metaphysical point of view has really helped helped me. Not that secret bullshit to make it poor people feel bad about right. it. Yeah. But I really have had an opportunity to um, learn things that give me power because with religion, the power was always in somebody else's hands. And it makes you feel fucked up because if it's like you really believe in this God that they're telling you exists, then why am I all this bad shit happening to me? And where's this God that you keep talking about? But learning to program my subconscious mind for, um, you know, winning and, and winning. And I don't mean that in a material, superficial way, but just really winning the day, being yeah. able to get through a day. You know, it's it's a very... Um, it's a very. It's been very uh, helpful for me. Do you want to say anything about abortion? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what? Um, I I talk about abortion because, um, like I, a lot of people don't think that Latin women have abortions or that uh, there's a stigma about that we're religious and we all oh, no. There's a spectrum. I do think that um, where I stand with abortion is I tell people if you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. Right. But don't tell other people what they can and cannot do with their bodies. What I told my daughter was there are psychological, emotional and physical ramifications to everything that you do in life. If you do squats every day, you'll get the calves and the butt that you want. If you don't, your muscles will go, you know, atrophy and you'll get flabby. Um, If you have an abortion, depending on how you're wired, 
If you're uh, Liz Winstead, you'll be fine. You go eat a burger and get on with your day. But if you've been programmed like me to believe that you're going to hell and that you're killing somebody, then you might want to think about it because you have to deal with that before you make whatever decision you make in life. You got to deal with what's with whatever tools you got or, you know, and and you can't you can't change the tools out. So when I talk about abortion, I like to talk about it responsibly when I'm talking to younger women like young girls, because whether you believe in abortion or not, whatever you're sending to them is uh, based on what your personal beliefs are. And you have to you have to allow people to process based on their own set of tools. So what I tell young people all the time is Whatever you decide to do, just know that you got to deal with it. And abortion is real. Whether you believe that you're taking a life or you're not, you still deal with it physically. You deal with it emotionally and you deal with it spiritually based on what your tools are. So be prepared for that. And that's no different than premarital sex or uh, having an orgy or eating three hamburgers or killing a dog. Whatever you do, (laughs) you got the tool. You know what your tools are. So if you feel good and you feel confident enough to do what you're going to do and say, I can deal with what happens after then. But just take into consideration what you're dealing with. And abortion is no different than that, because no matter how complicated or not complicated it is for some people, it really has an after effect that you got to walk around with, whether you want to uh, uh, you want to admit that or not. We are spirit. And this is not religious talk. It's it's how you process this. That's going to determine your five years from now. And if you're walking around thinking you killed a baby, maybe you're not the person to have an abortion. And maybe you should have that baby and give it up for adoption. But we can't just have this black and white conversation about abortion without talking nuance, because I think that's why people are so frustrated with each other, because we forget to talk about nuance. So if you believe in abortion, have one. And if you don't, um, Give that baby up, but don't be a bad parent and how keep a baby that you didn't want because that's not good either. <laughs> Stay tuned for her special. Yay! <laughs> thank you so much. No, thank you. That was oh. cathartic. That oh, was- good, good. That's why. <laughs> Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.